Dedicated to the wine industry since 2009. Featuring winemaker, cellar master, vineyardist, and tasting expert, Ron. Ron. Basically, what we're doing this program is just trying to educate people and trying to make wine less confusing and more friendly. From coast to coast and around the world. You know, we really have had some, some neat people on the program. I, I just, I love that. Post your questions and comments during the live show on our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash allaboutwinebtr. Again, that's www.facebook.com forward slash allaboutwinebtr. And now, All About Wine is on. Here's Ron. All right. Thank you, bus people. Thank you, thank you, thank you. All right. Yeah. Um, I, I got to share something before we bring our guests on here. I was at a Chevy dealer, dealer today and had my oil changed. And while I was there, they had a 2023 Corvette sitting on the showroom floor. I mean, this it was pretty. It was white with you know uh, these alloy rims and uh, I, it really really pretty. And I walked around. And I looked at it from front to back, and then I walked up and I looked at the sticker price that was on the window. Two hundred and six thousand dollars. And I just I, I took a stagger step backward. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. Unbelievable. But we have a guest tonight. He's already sitting in the wings in the in the green room waiting for us. So uh he is Clark Smith, author and an educator and an industry consultant and what got me to get him on the show was what was it, two months ago, something like that. I had a uh, opportunity and privilege of listening to a podcast that he was part of, and we will have the other half of that podcast on in a couple of weeks, actually. But he was part of a podcast that talked about Native American grapes, and it was really, really interesting. So I wanted to get him on that you talk about. It. That's why I haven't posted the podcast on the Facebook page. Because I want to get these guys on first and let them talk a little bit about it, and then I'll post the podcast so you can listen to it. So, without further ado, we're going to bring Clark onto the show. Welcome to All About Wine, Clark. Well, thank you, Ron. It's an honor to be asked. No, the honor is ours. I guarantee you. I love the podcast that you were on. I just—it was so interesting. And I'm sitting there scribbling notes and trying to keep up with it and everything. And then at the end, they'll say, "Well, we'll send this to you, and you'll have." And I'm going, "Wow, you know, all this note taking is for naught." So, but I—I uh, uh, I really enjoyed it. It was interesting. Uh, Native American grapes. I we I've talked to a lot of wineries around the country and all that, and most people, it seems, don't grasp the 
importance or the virtues of Native American grapes. I did have one guy on who was from, Mike, you might be able to help me on this. I, what was it, uh, Arkansas or Alabama? But I had one guy on who, oh, Kentucky, I believe, who sang the praises of American Native American grapes. He said that we need to start promoting these. We need to start getting these out there. And I told him, I said, people aren't aware of them. They don't like them. He said, we need to teach them. We need to educate them. So uh, we're, we're taking that first step tonight to educate some people on Native American grapes. So uh, That's great. I'm, it's a it's a very strange situation. Uh, there are really two wine industries. Uh, I don't think hardly anybody is really aware of this. We got about uh, twelve thousand wineries in the United States, mm-hmm. and what you see on the shelf, the nationally distributed brands, there's only about sixty-five of them. And they make all the wine in national distribution. And what they're trying to do is make the standard Cabernet, the standard Chardonnay. And you may have noticed there might be 40 Chardonnays on the shelf, but they all taste the same. (laughs) That's what that industry is trying to do. Just like it could be cigarettes or soda pop, they, they want consistency. And the last thing that, that anybody wants to put on the shelf is an, an interesting wine. Because mm-hmm. people don't understand them. You know, one of the problems with with uh, the wine industry is in most places it's illegal to sample the wine. And so you just kind of have to go on instinct or reviews or something like that. Okay, so that's one industry it comprises about 95% of all the wine that's sold, but it's really only about 10,000 to maybe 20,000 SKUs in the entire country. But there are actually over half a million SKUs, and they're all being produced by these little mom and pops all over the country. It's not all California anymore. It's about two-thirds of those wines are are being made, like you say, in, in Alabama or, or North Dakota, um, just everywhere. And the average size there, for those 65 guys, the average size is over a million cases. For the other 12,000, it's 2,000 cases. So they're little <laughs> tiny mom pops. And they're, they're now being able, with these new... Uh, Native American grapes, heirloom grapes from the 19th century, and a whole lot of hybrids are being developed, principally at University of Minnesota and Cornell, uh, right. these new uh, varieties that are cold tolerant. And they're really good wines. So we have a thing I call it the invisible rainbow, the kind of secret American wine revolution that nobody has access to because none of them have national distribution. Well, you know, part of that problem, too, is the distributors. I I, I am not a fan of the three-tier system. Okay, let me get that right out in front. Yeah, my my listeners know this because I've, you know, griped about it many times. But 
that is part of the problem because the distributors won't take these small wineries. I had a small winery here in Florida, okay, and, and uh, I, I had the the good fortune of having my distributor's license along with my manufacturing retail, which is you know a, a rarity, and I was able to get the wine down to different places, but. I'll tell you, the, the distributors in, just hate that when you, when you can distribute your own because they want a piece of the pie, and they if it doesn't sell, then they just pull it off or they reduce the price or whatever. And so these mom and pops can't afford that. And so what's the solution? I, I don't know. Well, the thing is, two things about these guys. One, one of them is I think they're really short-sighted. Because they should want people to get interested in these, like I said, interesting wines as a kind of a gateway drug to, to uh, just drinking wine uh, all the time. And, of course, they have the distribution advantages that they can do it cheaper. Uh, so that's one thing. The other is everything they're doing is unconstitutional. <laughs> it was made very clear in 2005 in Granoff versus Held, and then uh, again reaffirmed uh, in uh, the Tennessee case uh, a couple of years ago that the three-tier system is against the law. It's just the uh, dormant uh, uh, commerce clause in the yep. Constitution basically says that you either let you either let your own, you either forbid your own wineries to sell wine to their customers, except through a distributor, or you got to let everybody else in. And everybody knows this, and they've they've just been fighting it. And so, little by little, I'm a big fan of Tom Wark. I'm sure you know his work. Mm-hmm. He's, yeah. he's out there with, with with the National Retailers Association, and they're just suing these states. Uh, one by one, the whole thing's going to collapse. Uh, it really is kind of a dinosaur anyway. Oh, it is. It is. It's, it's been around for, well, since Prohibition ended, and it's time to stop it. I mean, almost 100 years now. Um, I had a uh, Florida legislature on, and he was talking about that, and he said that the, the states, uh, a winery needs to get some backing and sue the three-tier system because it is uh, because of the commerce clause, and uh, but you know there, there's no money that any small winery doesn't have the money or the time to pursue that. And no, it has to be it has to be coalitions like the National Retailers Association because they want right. this too. Yeah, it's it, it's ridiculous. I mean, I, I you, you can't get any wines from Texas here in Florida because it's just distributed in Texas. You can't get any wines from Pennsylvania here in Florida because it's just in Pennsylvania. And I can name 48 other states the same way. And uh, Well, now hold on. There's actually there's two different distribution systems. There's the one where you go through a distributor, and then there's direct-to-consumer. They're completely different oh, licenses. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now, it's a lot of money for a little winery to get a direct-to-consumer license for all 50 states. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but there's a, there's a way around that. And the, uh, there's something called Vino Shipper. Mm-hmm. And they've got about 3,000 wineries that they distribute for. And the way it works 
This is just direct to consumer. Uh, so this doesn't this doesn't help out those retailers. But if I sell you a bottle of wine uh, through Vino Shipper, they have all the licenses. And so just for a magic moment there, they will uh, take possession of the wine and ship it to you under their license. Ah, okay. So it's like, yeah, it's a really good system. And so the effectiveness, which is really humorous, is uh, Masters of Wine and hand sell shops and master sommeliers, anybody running a business has no access to the American Wine Revolution. They can own, they're, they're not masters of wine. They're masters of Southern wine and spirits. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and, and you as an individual can get, can get a hundred times as much wine. You can access that whole half million SKUs that's out there. And there are some really good wine. You mentioned Pennsylvania, uh, Galen oh, Blenders. Yeah. Uh, I'm the editor for Appalachian America, and they are on our list of the top 12 wineries in the United States. Wow. Uh, in uh, Texas, uh, well, you must know, uh, you're Florida, right? So do you know about Blanc yeah. de Bois? Yeah, oh, yeah. Blanc de Bois is, is very popular yeah. down here. There's quite a few wineries. Uh, it's really that. good. It was developed yeah. in Florida, and there's a guy named... Uh, uh, Chris Brendrett of William Chris in High, Texas, that makes six of them. Six. And the one that's the surly age, Loire style, is another wine that's on our list of the top 12 wines in the United States that nobody ever heard of. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, okay, so how do you... Somebody walks into a store, though, and they don't have the opportunity to see anything else, so they do their default wine. They do their... Cabernet or right. Woodbridge or their whatever, and right. how how do we get these other names out there? How how do we do that? Well, it's starting to happen. I actually got a call yesterday from a, a San Francisco retailer that had decided to bring in these wines. Really, Direct. San Francisco? Wow. Now there's a there's another way around this for the. For the business-to-business people, right. there's an outfit called Libdim, Liberation Distribution. Never heard of that. Now, oh well, they're they're the bomb. Uh, you know, if if I were to sell you through the three-tier system a twenty-dollar bottle of Cabernet, that retailer would have bought that. They're going to mark it up fifty percent, so they would have bought You're it for right. thirteen dollars. The distributor would have bought it for seven. Mm-hmm. So my cost of goods needs to be about four, four and a quarter. And then, of course, these distributors don't do anything for you. So all the marketing costs have to come out of my pocket as well. And right. if I'm really good at it, for that $20 Cabernet, I'll end up making 50 cents. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but but Liberation Distribution doesn't charge that. They 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 don't charge sixty percent markup. They charge fifteen percent. Wow! And they don't do anything either, except have the licenses. And they're now in about a dozen states, growing all the time. 
And the best part is they don't vet you. Uh-huh. So if I've got a if I've got a Kansas City Norton, and there are a bunch of really good ones, there are yeah. Then I can just go into LibDeb and sign myself up, and that's it. It takes about thirty minutes, and then I can sell to all the states that they sell in, of which. Wow. I don't know where the Florida is on the list, but that's what's happening. Uh, that. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna break this this monopoly uh, through, we have through those to. two those two outfits and more like them. So uh, all of a sudden, you know that Galen Glenn Gruner Veltinger I was telling you about from Lehigh, right. Pennsylvania. She's got it on the show in San Francisco. Wow! I you know and to get it on. Anything in California is an accomplishment, I think, you know, it's because California well, is so right. locked into California. It's just, it's not even, you know, it, it, We are pretty provincial here. Uh, but, you know, people are getting a little bored. Not not everybody. You know, most people are perfectly content to just have cabinet and truck mm-hmm. But But the people that are really into it, like you and me, we're only about 5% of the population, but we are bored. And we're <laughs> looking for adventure. And uh, tapping into this this uh, American wine revolution is just one of the great joys of my life. Uh, oh, yeah. So I usually, you know, I'll just go on the Internet and get them through Vino Shipper. But now I can just walk right down to the corner in uh, San Francisco and they buy a lot of these wines, and of course she's picking out the best ones. Uh, and honestly, I would rather drink an Iowa La Crescent than any white wine from California. <laughs> uh, I think California makes the worst wine in the country. And the reason is that we hate our grapes. So like Napa Chardonnay is a disgrace because it doesn't taste like Chardonnay. It just tastes like oak and butter. Now, oh yeah, I, do all this manipulation I, with it. When I said that, people get so mad at me. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. the, one, the, the ones that love the butter. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know the oak. Well, I, and in fact, I I told people I said you know I said when you buy a Chardonnay and it's got a whole bunch of oak in it, I said don't say yeah. ooh this is good because it's got oak. I said the question you should be asking is. What was wrong with this wine that the winemaker had to put so much oak in exactly. it to cover it up? You know, I mean... And that's because Napa Valley is a shitty place to grow Chardonnay. Yeah, and, and that's what they do. They oak their Chardonnay so much to cover up, and you don't really taste the Chardonnay anymore. You don't taste the grape. Whereas if you get other but parts go of the, to the country... go to the Santa Cruz Mountains, and I think their Chardonnays are the best in California. But they're not as good as the Chardonnays in Ohio. Yeah. No, There's a place called Mar- Marco that makes, I think, you know, he's been around since 1968, and his Chardonnay is the one Stephen Spurrier should have taken to Paris. But it really <laughs> does taste like Montrachet. You ever heard of uh, Merle Darmot Kari? No, I don't believe I have. Well, he's the most important enologist in U.S. history. The little 
pint-sized Indian guy that went to Ohio State, and then he got hired by a winery in Nebraska. Uh, and he then they hired him at uh, Southwest Missouri State, and he's there for about 15 years. And then the Iowa State Legislature kidnapped him and gave him a nice salary and put him to work for uh, Iowa State in Ames. And he has planted, between all those activities, almost a thousand wineries all over the United States. Wow. So, you know, Telesheff did about 200. And Murley hates oak. <laughs> and he hates <laughs> Narantes. He likes he likes to teach people to make wines that show the grape off and show the region off. And Good so question. that's why all this Midwestern wine is made in that that simple, honest style. So he's because. retired now, but to me he's he's a god. most people can't pronounce his last name and just call him Merly Merly D. <laughs> but he he was you know, he was really the Johnny Appleseed of the Midwest. Let me let me uh, what, spell his Murley M M U R L I L I. Okay, and his last name. And his last name is Dharma Dakari. D H A R M A D I K A R I. All right, because I want to look him up. And... Well, he's got a great little book called Microvinification oh, that came out of Ohio State, and I always recommend that when I teach my class. Yeah, Microvinification. Yeah, I'll go. I'm sure it's available on Amazon. I don't know about that. Uh, you might have to get it from Ohio State. Oh, really? I mean, Iowa State. Right. But I don't know. You could try. Okay, Iowa State. There's a paperback version. There's a paperback version on Amazon, but it's uh, $124.98. Whoa. <laughs> That's what yeah. I used to go for. Whoa. <laughs> Got to try another, another source, probably. Um, from 2001, yeah. it looks like. So, yeah. Uh, huh. Okay. Oh. Maybe microvinification yeah. is not a book that I will read on my leisure then at that price. Oh, here you go. Here you go. I've got it. At, you know Press Guile, don't you? Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a winery in Pennsylvania. It's also a shop. Mm-hmm. They've got it for forty nine ninety nine. Oh, there you go. Okay. And here... That's- Abe's books got a used copy for thirty-five fifty-one. Oh, okay. Yeah, I I've gotten lots of stuff from Prescott. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but of course, you know, with Amazon, you get the free shipping. That's true. That's very true. That can save you, <laughs> you know, five dollars. <laughs> uh, I, I get this pasta from Whole Foods for four bucks. It's a quinoa pasta. I get it for. For four bucks a box, <laughs> or I can get it from Amazon, which is the same company, for eight dollars a box and free shipping. <laughs> free shipping. <laughs> you get free shipping. You know that's important. Uh, 
And you can get it that afternoon if you really want it. Anyway, Merle is really important. Uh, if you go to uh, my website, which is uh, AppalachianAmerica.com, that's Appalachian as in naming, not, not the mountain range, uh, <laughs> you'll, you'll find a couple of video interviews with him that I did back in... 2008, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah, I've been to your website. It but is big. I'm telling you, uh, Iowa was making some really nice wines. In the who is? And there's about 40 varieties that are really interesting. A lot of them coming from the University of uh, Minnesota, oh, handed Cornell. down from this guy, this guy named Elmer Stenson. No, no. Well, there's Cornell too. Yeah. But uh, University of Minnesota has cranked out a lot of them. You, you know, there's a wonderful movie about all this. It's called Wine Diamonds. Huh. And it, it's on YouTube. Uh, and it follows five families around that are making wines in Illinois and Minnesota and all that. And it talks oh. a lot about Elmer Spencer. Oh, really? Got started with these cold-tolerant varieties uh, in Wisconsin, and then he gave all of his work to University of Minnesota. The wine to look for, La Crescent is a, is a light, like Sylvania or whatever. Yeah, yeah like not a, too sweet. Like a good like demeanor sweet, on you without the bite. Yeah. It's it's yeah. much much lighter on its feet than the yeah. Yeah. Uh Then you got uh, if you like sweet, Brianna is awful good. Um, in the reds, Petite Pearl. And I've never heard thing of called Petite Pearl. Crimson Cabernet. Oh, it's the it's the hot new thing. Oh, who was putting? Who was making that? Uh, oh, a couple hundred wineries. Really? In the middle. Really? Why oh, have yeah. I not heard of that? That is. Well, it's relatively new. Uh, the other one that you'll see quite a lot of is Marquette. Oh yeah, uh, you see Marquette. The pearl is a, is a little bigger. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm I'm a big fan of of Saint Pepin in the whites. Yeah, I've, it's kind of like yeah. a Loire style Muscadet or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I've seen I've seen that around. Uh, I have visited and I continue to get emails from. Oh, geez, I just had a I just had it and I've got a blank that. It's tough when you get old and you can't remember stuff like this. Uh, oh, uh, then Southeast Iowa. Um, oh, geez. But uh, they they make a lot of those uh, different wines there too, and uh, I've visited them and uh, I've had an opportunity to taste quite a few of them and all that. So uh, those that's a very well, you know, good when Merle got there, all, all there was was six wineries, fruit wine, 
from the Amanda colonies. Mm-hmm. When he retired, there were over a hundred winners there. <laughs> oh, and I was just up in Minnesota for a family reunion, and mm-hmm. I stopped by a winery that just blew my mind called Wine Haven. Uh-huh. And they actually invented and patented three grapes that they've got. Oh, really? Uh, uh-huh. Yeah. And the one I just a wonderful red was uh, it's called Nokomis. Does that ring a bell? And Nokomis, the yeah, I've heard of Nokomis, and I can't remember why yeah. or where. But yes, Hiawatha's mother. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's that's in the by the shores of Gichigumi. Gichigumi. Oh, no <laughs> that's the uh, yeah. of Nicomas. Nicomas, daughter yes. of the moon Nicomas. That's where it comes from, and it's yeah, really my, great. My dad used to sing that or say that poem all the time. That's where I've. <laughs> yeah, mine too. Yeah. Uh, was what is it, red or white? It's red. It's a big, dense red. You'd think it was a Syrah. Uh, I, uh, it's cold tolerant, obviously. It goes to 40 below. Wow. Yeah. And, and, you know, and this is the thing, uh, that is going to keep us going. How about heat tolerant? Everybody talks about cold tolerant, but how about heat? Well, it's not just, you know, when you have climate change, you, I don't know if you guys in Florida believe in climate change, but I think No, we, no, we, we uh, just... <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, what you got to realize is uh, vinifera, even before climate change, can only grow on near water because of its, its cold intolerance. So you got it no. on the West Coast, and you got it on the East Coast, you got it up near the Great Lakes, and that's it. So you're leaving out about 85% of the places you can plant grapes. And now yeah. those are all filled in by the native grapes. When we get to climate change, you're changing, like, insect populations, and you're oh, getting yeah. all these plagues. Well, all these grapes are from here, and so they don't have to be grafted. They, they're, you know, mildew tolerant and and uh, pest tolerant, and so uh, I'm a big fan of the of the Munson varieties. There's another guy, yeah, most um, people Munson never varieties. heard of, but he saved yeah. the vineyard of Europe. He's yeah, the guy that's got the rootstocks over there. Yeah. And uh, you know, I consider him to be the most important viticulturist in world history. Uh, but he developed about 300. Uh, he bred and collected about 300 uh, grape varieties and presented them uh, in the World's Fair in St. Louis in 1905. Uh, wow. And uh, so I've got a client, Vox Vineyards, in Kansas City that's planning about 65 of these varieties, and they're really good. Where's he located in Kansas City? And, uh, yeah, he's kind of south of the airport, over on the west side. Park Parkville area? Kind of. 
He's sitting on uh, about 600 feet of glacial till. So his soils are a very low heat capacity. They warm up pretty good. They call it Little Dixie. Hmm. And he's growing with the white Albania. They're crazy names. Albania is, I think, the best one. Hidalgo. And then in the reds, you've got Cloeta, Lenoir, Lamanto. I've heard of Lenoir. Lenoir is sometimes called uh, Black Spanish. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's yeah. Okay, that's back. Yeah, Lenore. Uh, he's just you. No, go on. Well, you you get on his site and he tells a story of all these grapes, where they came from, and the, what they taste like, and all that. Oh, so, what? To me, have it's you Vox have his site? I think. Vox. Yeah. Okay, I, I'm going to be talking. Uh, that's uh, uh, Teravox, yeah. Teravox, that's correct. Yeah, yeah Teravox. Jerry yeah. Eisterhold. Jerry, yeah. And his winemakers is, is – he's he's crazy. He, he's a, uh, a museum architect. Oh, really? and <laughs> so that's his, that's his day job. And then he decided to put in this living – Vineyard museum, and he wasn't <coughs> wasn't really trying to make money. He just just thought it would be fun. Fun. And then after about ten years, he thought, "Well, you know, we ought to see if we can make some money." Here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so they hired me in 2012, and I built the winery for them. They've really done well for themselves. They actually ma- managed to get into the Spectator. Oh. And uh, yeah, he's he's a real trailblazer. Well, he's he's going to be the guest on the show on the seventh of September. So uh, I'm looking forward oh, to that too. Great. Uh, well, yeah. I, the reason I'm asking is what area I was born and raised in North Kansas City, and I'm very familiar with that area there. I'm just trying to picture well, what areas the vineyard is. I'll see if I can dig out his address here. Okay. We'll probably say something to you. No, because uh, uh, well, I can. I guess I can ask him in a couple of weeks. That's not a problem either. Where exactly where he is? Okay. The address. He's out on Farley Hampton Road. Okay. Does that say anything to you? No, it doesn't. But there's so many new areas up there now that it's just unbelievable. Since well, I've... he's definitely he's he, it's rural. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's it's rural. Around the airport is still pretty rural. They have well, southeast and southwest of the airport is still pretty rural, and then north of there, but dire- directly south of the airport is built up quite a bit. So, well. Yeah. Do you know where Farley and Hampton are? Hampton is is in the southwest corner of the airport. Okay, okay. And Farley is is due west over by the Platte. Oh, okay, okay. So and he's right in between the two. So he's actually south of Weston and. 
east of Weston. Southeast of Weston, because Weston. Oh yeah, yeah. He's that's right. He's he's maybe five miles south of Weston. Yeah. Okay. And a little yeah. bit east. Okay, southeast. Uh-huh. Yeah. That, so yeah. Uh, yeah, that's and that's very good soil there. They've been growing tobacco in that Weston area for years. And that's years. right. Yeah. That's right. That's why they call it Little Dixie. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because of the the tobacco industry up there. And then just north of Weston is a great area for apples, uh, Uh which will be coming out this time of year. So, uh, for all you people who live in the Midwest there, it is well worth a trip, not only just for the winery, but for the other stuff there. Uh, Well, and you're making uh, a couple of points about why the Midwest can make better wine than California can. One of them is that we have really crappy soils. We don't have any limestone. You know, we've got decomposed granite, and that's about it. Uh, Mostly sandy loams, just not very interesting soils. Where the whole rest of the country, I mean, Alabama is a big slab of limestone. So is Kentucky. Mm. Uh, And so they can make wines that are much more minerally, much more French-style just because of the soils. And then the other thing they got going for them is cool sunlight. The uh, When you get up, like in the Finger Lakes, for example, mm, their, yeah. their day length in the summer is two hours longer than ours. Oh, yeah. And since they're on the water there, you're reflecting sunlight. So, so they get their Riesling riper at lower bricks. That's the third uh-huh. thing is, is California's air is way too dry. And so our grapes evaporate water, and we tend to make wines that have too much alcohol. Yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, where, you know, in Alabama, you know, you're picking your, your muscadines. They come in 8 9% alcohol, and they're fully right uh-huh. because of the humidity. Oh, yeah. If you live in that area, you're probably not crazy about the humidity, but it makes really good wine. Yeah, because it keeps the moisture in there and moisture in the grapes, yeah. Oh. But this in California, no. it's just crazy on their alcohol and their wines now. They're just going nuts on it. Uh, I've talked about that before. Well, some too. of that's by by choice. Uh I was just looking at the 1976 grape crush report and the average bricks of a Cabernet Sauvignon in Napa Valley was 22.9, which gives you a little less than 13% alcohol. Whereas today it's 25.6, which gives you 20% alcohol. Yeah, and that's not because of climate change. That's just be, that's just bad winemaking. It's quite cynical, really. That uh, you know, again, like the Chardonnay, they're just trying to make blockbusters that don't taste very good. Yeah, they, they, well, they got people trained in this country that that they got to have an oaky Chardonnay, and they got to have a an, a buttery Chardonnay, and they got to have a 
a big jammy Cabernet, and that's what you've got to drink. And so people look for that, and uh, they don't realize. Well, uh, I would say stupid rich people look for that. <laughs> okay. Okay. And that's <laughs> that's that's who they're making wine for. I mean, yeah, you're at three hundred dollars right. a bottle, you and I are not shopping there. No, uh, that's not going to happen. And, and and it is a problem that there's a feeding frenzy of we don't seem to be running out of stupid rich people, and so they sort of <laughs> have to make the wines that way, even if they hate them. Yeah, you know, well, that's a good point. Yeah, you know, because it's you know, as long as you got a market, you got to cater to it, and if they can. Well, you don't. You really well, don't. And, and there are some wineries in Napa, like like Burgess and Chateau Magdalena, that you know they they expect the consumer to to dribble down the other end of the court and shoot their basket. They make beautiful wines, and Napa is a wonderful place to make Cabernet. But it's you know not if you not if you're making raisin wine. <laughs> yeah, but I was saying, you, know, you know people say the wines are port like, and I say, well, that's an insult to port. <laughs> <laughs> you're absolutely right. Because ports are not <laughs> ports are not picked over right, and they have a lot of a lot of character. Yeah, they do. They really do. So it's a uh, sad situation. Uh, Okay, let's, I want you to tell us a little bit about some uh, the, the beginnings of our little history of Native American grapes. Uh, why? Okay. Why did we? Well, bring and we in, haven't even mentioned Norton yet. Yeah, well, yeah, I'm a big star. Norton fan. And, and Norton, is, what's so exciting about Norton is you can make it sweet, you can make it dry, you can do just so much with it. Uh, it's it's really an exciting grape. Important. There's a Virginia winery called Horton that makes the Snorton Horton Norton Port. <laughs> so, yeah, Norton is, uh, it, it was discovered in the woods uh, in uh, 1820 by Dr. Norton. Uh, it, is a, it is a hybrid of two grapes, and we're not sure what they are. They happened out in the woods, or it may have been Norton that did it. Uh, but they're both, uh, they're not Vitis vinifera, they're Vitis estivalis. Mm-hmm. Turns out there are almost a hundred uh, grape species, vinifera is only one, um, and that's the one from Europe. So all, almost all the rest of them evolved in, uh, in the New World. Mm. Uh, so Texas and Missouri, kind of a hotbed of of all of these different varieties. But this was Virginia. And uh, the wine has, it's kind of incredible. It's got, it's got, when you make wine, you're a winemaker, so you know that yeah. when the wine goes dry, you're using this brick hydrometer to look at the density. Right. And because alcohol is lighter than water, when the wine goes dry, it's going to be about minus one and a half bricks, whereas zero is water. But that's not what happens in Norton. The only grape I know that stops at about zero. So that means it's got one and a half percent of something 
I think it's a polysaccharide that gives the wine incredible density and mouthfeel, like a microbrew beer. Um, and that coats the tannins. It's got a lot of tannin, but the tannins are very soft. And if you get it right, now it's got really high acid, so you've got to get it right. And you have to plant it someplace where where it will ripen and lower that acidity. And then you just get, it's like drinking blueberry pie. Uh, <laughs> you know, very rich, dark fruit. Now, the problem with Norton is there's about 500 of them, uh, ones that make it. But a lot of them are planning it for its winter tolerance and its disease tolerance, and they're putting it in places where it can't ripen. So you will get you will get some that aren't very good. Uh, <laughs> now his he actually named the grape Cynthiana. Yeah, I was going to say <laughs> which it goes by Cynthiana in West Virginia. That is his daughter Cynthia. But uh, after he died. They kind of started calling it Norton. So now, basically, if the wine is really good, you call it Norton. If it's not, you call it Cynthiana. (laughs) (laughs) But I I have to be the only guy in California that makes Norton. You're making uh, Norton? Yeah, in Clarksburg with the Harringer family. And it's just wonderful. It's it's really something. Although, you know, I'm coaching Jean-Louis there at Terrebox. Yeah. Uh, my Norton gets a gets a gold every year at, at uh, San Francisco Chronicle competition. Mm. But his gets a double gold. <laughs> ah. So, yeah, he's yeah. really got a good place to go to. And there's several others there. Uh, think James and uh, probably the star is uh, Stonehill. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and do you know that Stonehill was called something else? But back in 1878, there were, there were, it, 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 there was an international competition in Vienna that uh, gave out 11 international gold medals, and eight of them were to Missouri wines. Uh, yeah, three of those were Norton's. At that time, Stonehill was the third largest winery in the world, yes, and they I, sold the most popular wine in the world, which was their Norton. Norton, yeah. yeah Missouri was the, was the wine area of, of the United States and almost the world up until... Prohibition, and that killed. That's right. And and the time it uh, was settled, and California had taken over, and Missouri was just sort of an afterthought. But uh, so, why do you think? Why do you think California took over? You know, well, I think one of the reasons is the number of wineries, the tourist aspect of it. You know, I mean, Napa Valley's got this. No, no, I'm talking about, I'm talking about in in 1934. Oh, why it took over? What was it? Well, it's just the end of Prohibition. 
Yeah, it was in the prohibition, yeah. And it just ended the prohibition and the a lot of the wineries in Missouri didn't survive. Uh and California started to pop them all well, up. Well it's true. Stonehill turned into a mushroom facility. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but but it wasn't Napa Valley that made it happen. Who oh really? Have you ever read uh the Grapes of Wrath? Uh, yeah, years ago. Yeah, it was. Okay, so you've got you've got Dust Bowl labor, which is essentially free. Right. You have very cheap land, and you have the WPA putting dams in so that you had water that was essentially free. Yeah, and okay. So it all happened down in Kern County in the Central Valley, and what they were doing was selling port for 19 cents a bottle. Oh, I didn't know you that. Couldn't, you couldn't do that in the Midwest. You could only make premium grapes there. <laughs> can do that. Well, let me stuff. ask you a question. What, what was the average alcohol of a California wine in 1960? 1960? I, I'm probably going to go high on that. Uh, I'd say probably about 17% on the reds. Good for you. It was 18.5. 18.5, wow, even higher than I expected. We did not make any table wine. 5% of the production table wine. All wow. the rest of it was port and sherry for 30 years. Never realized that. So, but you you don't hear what, about that's, that. Though. That's what California got famous for was was making port and sherry, the little old ladies and Sacramento wine. I never knew that one. Well, then, oh, what was the conversion then over to the? Uh... <laughs> well, no, that's that's an interesting story. What do you think was the average alcohol of the California wine in nineteen seventy? In 1970, oh, it had to drop. It had to drop down to for red, 13, 12, 13 percent. There really wasn't any red wine. Oh, the yeah. was 11 percent. And oh, what geez. changed everything was the was blue nun. Oh. And okay, probably so Matusas imported. Okay. Yeah. Well, I. That's part of the same story. Uh, but I, there's some kind of index, uh, I forget what it's called, of how long you can get into a conversation before somebody mentions Hitler and the Nazis. Mentions what? I'm sorry. Hitler. Oh. oh. Let, let me see if I can find it. Uh, uh, index Hitler. Because this is all about this is all about Hitler. <laughs> it is. Uh, there's some guy that, that I can't find it. Uh, all right. Well, anyway, we never would have split the atom if it had not been. For Hitler scaring the Jesus out of 
Come yeah. on. Okay. Godwin's Law. Godwin's Law. Okay. God, 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 okay, and it's the, uh, it's an internet adage of how long a, a, a thread can go on before somebody mentions Hitler and the Nazis. So here we are. Um, like I said, the, it was unbelievably expensive to split the atom. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the Manhattan Project was not cheap. Oh, yeah. And we were only doing it because we were afraid the Nazis were going to get there first. Right. So then, paradoxically, we didn't end up bombing Germany. We, we bombed Japan. Yeah. But um, anyway, then we had everybody wanted to come up with peacetime uses of nuclear energy. And one of them, paradoxically, a German company called Nuclepor, came up with a integrity testable sterile filter <laughs> that was manufactured in a in an atomic pile. You just take a sheet of plastic and you put it in there. The alpha particles punch holes in the plastic. You develop it in fluoric acid, and the longer you leave it in there, the bigger the holes get. So you could make reverse osmosis for, <laughs> for filtering the the salt out of seawater. U.S. Navy was really hot on that, uh, and and sterile filters, I'm sure you've used them. Um, mm-hmm. uh, we call it bubble pointing, where you test yeah. the filter before and after the run. Well, we didn't have those prior to World War II, and so all wine was dry, except port and sherry and dessert wines, and champagne, because the bubbles yeah. keep champagne from re-fermenting. Right. So... Well, I won't drag us all into why I think brute champagne is horrible, but uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, it got famous. You know, the sec, the dry one, was six percent right. sugar. It's yeah, just the fun. sugar of the southern way of that. But <laughs> but they had to switch over to brute, even though originally brute was just an insult to the British because only an animal would drink wine like that. That's what it means. But uh, anyhow, Peter's a show. He's got this leaf trail milk. It was dry. It was a Riesling, Sylvaner mix. But when he got the Nucleport filters, then he could make it a little off-dry and, and fresh. And nobody had ever had a wine like that before. So somewhere in the mid-60s, Blue Nun came out as a sweet leaf trail milk and then California, the California wine industry went completely nuts, and they switched over to Gallo Chablis, Amadan Rhein wine, Winnie Gray Riesling, um, <laughs> uh, Weibel Green Hungarian. These were all 11% alcohol and 2% sugar. And that's all we made until the French Paradox came along and started drinking red wine. But uh, that that's that was the whole industry in the space of ten years. Got rid oh of all important sherry and started making leaf from it. And I remember every one of those wines that you just mentioned there. I mean, those were those were the ones you'd go to a party and there'd be bottles of 
those wines. Right, and, and mostly they were imports, like Lancers and, and Matus. Yeah. Uh, Fontana Vendita Frascati, Bola Suave, but they were all made <laughs> that way. You know, Rene Grazi was the only one that really, you know, was the largest selling wine in the United States in 1973. Yeah, but you, I remember all those. All of us were imports. It was the wines that everyone drank, you know. And there was no reds. You're right. There was absolutely no reds. There's uh, the reds didn't start coming in. A little bit of Gallo, Hardy Burgundy, and some of the oh, yeah. Gallo, <laughs> Hardy Burgundy was the, the, the red that most people drank. But uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't thought about that for years, but that's that's very true there. So, the native grapes in this country, Norton obviously came around, but the original ones, the the, the foxy grapes, have those all well, been blended well, into? I hate the word foxy. Nobody really knows what it means. But I, know, I, I think know. you I might know. be talking about Labrusca, uh, which is to say Concord. Really? So the, the grapey stuff. Yeah, well, um, yeah, yeah, maybe. It's sometimes called the fox grape. Uh, yeah. yeah. But it's very fruity. Uh, still very popular. You know, the, there's a uh, there's a wine in New York State called Red Cat. And it's the oh, largest yeah. selling wine in New York State. Not only is it the largest selling, but it outsells all the rest of the industry combined. Oh, it's really? It's Walter's grape juice with alcohol in it, basically. Oh, uh, my God. Yeah. And it's kind of tasty. <laughs> but I do want to stress that these other varieties we're talking about are not foxy. No, no. Um, not, but, but no, I'm, I was just referring to the fact that the, the native, the grapes that were here when when America first started to move across the country... I had read mm-hmm. somewhere and, and that they were of the, you know, the fox grapes. That's what they were called. And uh, were these? Well, that's 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 the Concords and the Niagara's and that's Vitis Labrusca. Oh, but, okay. Yeah. Uh, well, the first thing that happened is you had Munson down in Texas in the 19th century, mm-hmm. and then you got. Uh, there, there were varieties that were developed in France by t- because you had phylloxera in the 1890s, right. and they wanted to breed grapes that had phylloxera resistance but still had European characteristics. So uh, the, the the star in that of the French American hybrids was Chamberson, mm. and I got to tell you. Uh, uh, well, here's a, here's another trivia question. What's the what was the first American uh, AVA? The uh, very first one was in Missouri. That's right, Augusta, Missouri. Yeah. And there's a winery there called Augusta Winery, and they make a Chamberson. For some reason, it retails for eleven dollars and eighty six cents. 
<laughs> and you can put that in a $50 burgundy tank and it'll do just fine. Oh, yeah. Really a, really a wonderful wine. So Chambersan is kind of like Pinot Noir. Uh, so many hybrids? And then you have, and it's a French-American hybrid, yeah. And then you have Saint Blanc and Vidal Blanc. Uh, there's, a, there's a whole bunch of them. Oh, those all uh, French-American oh, hybrids? And, and, yes. Now, oh. Saint Blanc, if you go to Care in uh, Wisconsin, they've got something they call Prairie Fume. And it goes for about $10. And it consistently wins awards at wine competitions as the best white wine in the United States. Wow. And it's all Sable Blanc. Wow. So it's, a, it's, it's just a, delicious. A drier profile, a little bit of acid. Yeah. Oh, right. Wow. And and very fresh, delicious stuff. They're not oaking the hell out of it or anything, you know. Not I never sees oak. That's that's good. Like I said, no nobody really over oaks anything in in the Midwest. Yeah. Because of Merlin. And they don't have to because their grapes have great flavor. And they take care of themselves. Like, you know, again, if it's over oak, then there's something wrong with it. Another another question for you. American native grapes, how are they going to hold up to things like, uh, uh, well, the uh, spotted lanternfly or, uh, you know, all these other introduced pests that we are getting in the country? Well, we're going to find out, right? Um, and I don't know the answer to that. The spotted lanternfly is certainly a concern. But in general, like I said, because they are native, they have pretty good tolerance, you know, to insects and mildews in general. Yeah. Uh, the vinifera are always the first to go seems to be always the one that is attacked and, and the one that they worry about the most. Oh. Yeah. Hmm. Um, but we, we don't really, it hasn't been around long enough to learn just how bad it is. But, you know, I have a picture of uh, phylloxera now. We think of phylloxera as a root disease, but it actually has a wing form. Yeah, and, oh, yeah. It, it, we we don't get it in California. It's something to do with the dryness. But I've got a, a picture of of a, uh, a of a leaf of an Albania plant in Jerry Eisterhoff's vineyard. It's just covered with phylloxera galls, <laughs> and the and the vine is the vine is fine. Really? Yeah, it's just totally resistant. Well, that's amazing. Well, you know, you you mentioned resistance, though. Um, A winery just north of of here, and I I say just north of (coughs) that county, that far, just uh, that close, just north, uh, has been growing Mm -hmm. Norton for, what, 
I, I, 10 years now, 11 years. And uh-huh, he's really? not had any problems with Pierce disease. Whenever he has it tested, it tested that it's infected, but the grapes are, or the vines are thriving and the grapes Well, there are, you go. Well, Pierce's disease, of course, is, is Native American, Native to America. Yeah. And, uh, and these Nortons are. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a bit surprised. Doing well, you know. So uh, he was concerned. He was really concerned when he first planted it, but uh, it's it's going well. So uh, you know, part of the part of the benefit here is that you don't need to use as many sprays. There's oh, yeah. a lot less pesticides and chemicals and stuff in many of these Native Americans where they have to spray the vinifera. Yeah, you know, and then. And with <laughs> the big movement of biodynamic and organic and all that other stuff, I visited a winery mm-hmm. in California a few years ago and um, went out to the vineyards. I asked the manager in charge of the vineyards, I said, are you organic? He goes, every spring we are until we get infested and then we become not organic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that answer. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, <laughs> Mike, you have any uh, any questions, comments, or anything for Clark? Um, I'm checking online too. Just want to make sure I'm not uh, local. I don't have anything. No, but uh, just taking a lot of notes. <laughs> yeah, I know. There's. I'm surprised you can keep up. He's throwing so much information out here. Um, well, Clark, I told you it'd be about an hour tonight, and so I'm going to let you go. But I want to reserve the opportunity for you to come on again. Sure. Uh, yeah. If you don't mind, before before we go, I'd like to plug my book and my class. I would love you to plug everything that you do and and all that. Yes, I was just going to give you that opportunity, uh, and okay. also uh, website and. Uh, contact information if anyone wants to get a hold of you about anything and your books and everything. Uh, give us the whole run. Well, my website is very, has a very simple name. It's whoisclarksmith.com. <laughs> yeah, that is pretty good. Because <laughs> I do a lot of things. So I wrote two books. One is Postmodern Winemaking. It was the 2013 Wine Spirits Magazine Book of the Year. Oh, wow. And, uh, it, I wrote it for two reasons. One is to have an open conversation with winemakers about basically all the things they taught us in school that just ain't so, <laughs> um, and a way of switching from making clean, safe wine to making great wine. And then the other reason was to allow about half the people buy this book are are just wine lovers that want to they want to know what's going on what winemakers really talk about and you know we're like we're like rock stars you know we don't you know there's a privacy a kind of guardedness particularly with the natural wine people firing live ammo over our heads every time we tell the truth um, so you know just to ex- Explore the notion of honesty uh, to heal this kind of bad marriage between wine lovers and 
I mean, we're not crooks. You know, if, 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 if these people are smart and dedicated. They could have been lawyers. They could have been doctors. But instead, they chose to be something like a, a jazz musician. You know, don't ever do it unless you have to, because there's no money in it. And I yeah. think they deserve a little more respect. So that's one book. And the other one is called A, uh, the, uh, a Practical Guide to Pairing Wine and Music. Wine and Music? So it's oh. just, I can make you love or hate anything with my album. I think wine really is liquid music. And, you know, for example, if you're drinking a Cabernet and you play a polka, it's going to sound, it's going to taste terrible. Yeah. But if right. you play something dark and sort of angry, like like the doors, people are strange, or Beethoven's stiff, <laughs> then the wine gets round and sweet. It's kind of crazy. So they can explore all that on uh, pairingwineandmusic.com. That sounds interesting. A pairing wine and music, a practical guide to pairing wine and music. Okay. Um, but there's also, you, you don't even have to buy the book. There's a, there's a bunch of maybe 30 playlists there that you can download from Spotify for free. So if you're having a, uh, Cabernet Franc, you can just download that playlist and uh, enjoy your dinner. And there you go. Also, don't forget your uh, website, www.appalation, A-P-P-E-L-A-T-I-O-N, AppalachianAmerica.com. And it's, uh, yep. I've seen that, that is, that, that is an afternoon. I'm, I'm talking 12.01 noon to 6 o'clock in the evening, a full afternoon read. There's a lot of stuff there. Well, and, uh, it's got 30,000 pages, so maybe. I don't think that's going to But it is a great stuff. little place to look up these, uh, you know, the wines of Iowa. There's a lot of articles on there and maps. Yeah. So then the, for those of you who are interested in upping your game as a winemaker, I have a class called Winemaking Fundamentals Made Easy uh, that basically takes, uh, it condenses the essentials of a, uh, a winemaking degree, you know, enology degree, Normally takes four years, and we do it all in a weekend. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, I don't really leave much out. So it's very, very popular, even with experienced winemakers that want to kind of brush up their game. And that can be found, well, on my website, whoisclarksmith.com. You can get there, or just type in modernwinechemistry.com. ModernWineChemistry.com. That's an easy way to do it. Uh, is your class an online class or what? Yeah, it's it's 88 10-minute videos recorded so you can do it at your own pace. Oh, wow. You throw in a hard copy of a 550-page syllabus on just about every wine-making topic, plus a little mini-consult with me to adapt the material to your particular situation. 
I would find that interesting. I'm not making wine anymore, but that would be something that I think I would find very interesting. I'll have to check that out myself. So, uh, thank you, Clark, so much. It was extremely interesting and enjoyable talking with you. And I will, like I say, hold out the possibility of you coming back on the show again, and we can continue the conversation and talk more about what all the, well, we've got Vitus vinifera, Vitus astavillus, and there's lots of others. Talking about those and the differences of those. And Berlandia, yeah. Yeah, yeah there's, okay. a, there's yeah, we a lot can get of, into more detail. That would be fun. I, I like to do that, too. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us tonight, and uh, it was enjoyable, and I will look forward to our next conversation. My very great pleasure, Ron. Thank you so okay. very much. No, thank, thank you. you. Yeah. Thank you. Bye now. Oh. That was that. Uh, I found that a very interesting. I hope everybody else out there did. I did. I thought that was very interesting. You know. A lot of information. Very, um, very knowledgeable. Very. Uh, oh yeah. yeah, very knowledgeable. Well, Gee, I, I passed my test. He asked me questions, and I did good. Wow. Uh, <laughs> I did one of the tests on your But yeah, that that was very interesting. I I I will definitely get him on again and uh yeah. talk about uh, stuff. I a couple of weeks we have um uh Jim uh uh, Jerry, Jerry Eisenberg uh, on, and he has Teravox Winery, and he's the one that's doing a lot of those experiments with the different grapes up there in Missouri. And so uh, yeah. I need to fly up and visit my sisters and go out and visit with Jerry, it looks like. It's going to have to be. You can from there. Just bring an extra microphone and. Um, yeah, just do a live broadcast, you know. <laughs> Here we are live. <laughs> Here we are live. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Take the job. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's you know, that would be fun. Yeah. So, yeah. all right. Um, well, yeah. That yeah. was. Uh, let's see. Very, very, yeah. Um, we still have another guest next week. Uh, Terry Shimrick looks like um, yeah. August thirty first. What I have done here? Yes, yeah. um, he, he is our next guest, and Terry is uh, a, uh, a movie. He did a movie, and so yeah. we're going to get him on. He and his brother uh, are directors yeah. of a movie. Yeah, Toby. Yeah, thank you. I was yeah, thinking Toby. Todd. I knew that wasn't right. Uh, Tobin, Tobin James, I think is how I wrote it. Brother, yeah. Uh, T-O-P-I-N. Okay. So make sure I got it right. Spelled right. He'll be on also later in September. Yeah, uh, he, will, he will be visiting okay. us also. So we got lots of stuff coming up here and a lot mm-hmm. of interviews. And I was just telling Mike before the show, I've been talking to other people and it looks like we might be booked all the way through to the end of September with guests. Uh, good possibility. I've got some that are 
supposed to get back to me to confirm, but as of right now, it looks like we're booked all the way through to the end of September. So, hmm. uh, which is a good thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the first of October, yeah. we might get our cigar guys back on again and do another another cigar show. You know, when when he first got on the phone, I thought. Just listening, you know, if I, if I close my eyes, not like I can tell either way, but just listening to his voice, I thought that was Cap. Just a little <laughs> hint. I listened and I'm like, wait a minute. Is that really? And Is this a joke? Like, oh, yeah. Like, Hold on a second. It's, it's all that kind of like uh, the, the same flow and, and just, um, it, I don't know, there's something similar about it that just kind of threw yeah. me off for a little bit. I know what you mean. I hear my, I was just like cap. I don't know what the, what's going on here. Well, uh, they they've got this uh, a teacher uh, tone, and it's so it yeah. flows right out, and it's easier to follow and stuff like that. And so, yeah, yeah. I understand what you're yeah. saying on that. Wow. Well, I think that's gonna do it for tonight. Yeah, tonight. Uh, do it for for this evening on uh, August the 24th. Uh, might do another replay on Sunday like I did last week on uh, Flightline Radio. So if you if you're uh, for some reason want to catch it there, you can. But I uh, did a, a repeat of, of last Thursday's show last Sunday. And uh, did you? Because they're being recorded. Yeah, yeah. I put it on. Uh, I think it was 11 a.m. to 12 something p.m. whenever the show ends but uh yeah just uh, played it on 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 the thing put it on the schedule so probably do that again uh, this week thank you so uh speaking of flight line radio Uh flight line radio.com you should have that memorized you know uh yeah and saturday morning seven to nine which is too Mm -hmm. early for me i never get up on saturday morning time to listen to you I get, up, I, get up, I get up around eight thirty. Uh, but no. uh, it's just, <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm All here, right. but not mentally. I'm taking yeah, a but, half hour of requests. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Better hurry. And better hurry. Uh, yeah. uh, no, I'm, I'm but, in there. Mike's live seven to nine Saturday mornings, and Flightline Radio is on twenty four seven. And then it sounds like he's replaying the All About Wine show uh, on Sunday mornings at 11. Sunday so. morning, 11 to 11 to about 12 or whenever the show ends, uh, yeah. it uh, starts. So Very yeah. good. Um, right. Thank you. Yeah, I was just yeah. getting some more uh, show times out there. Um, yeah. And it's uh, almost 20 minutes after 8 o'clock. And wow. The show yeah, I'll close the show here for tonight, and uh, we'll see you all uh, next Thursday, right here on uh, All About Wine. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Time. Be safe. Be safe. Thank you. Here we go. This concludes tonight's broadcast of All About Wine with your host, Ron. For show information, links to All About Wine on Twitter and Facebook, or to be a guest on this show, visit the show website at www.allaboutwinebtr.com. Archived shows are available for download on iTunes or on our show page at blogtalkradio.com forward slash allaboutwine. Thank you for listening. 
drink responsibly, and we'll see you next time on All About Wine. All About Wine. Close that off, and close that one off. Wow. Go to the green room.